the Jungle Times, a podcast that explains how understanding nature's management principles can help you enhance your personal power and leadership skills. In a world beset by climate change, mass migration, and social unrest, fake news and bad politics are threatening the future of our planet. This series of timely presentations will demonstrate how nature's 4.5 billion years of success is based on the emergence of creative leaders. It is my pleasure to introduce your guide, the only researcher on Earth who treks tropical jungles in a wheelchair, author and training consultant, Lawrence Poole. Welcome to the Jungle Times podcast. I'm Lawrence Poole, and this is episode number nine. I call it The Five Sacred Arts, Part 1. In this two-part series, I'm going to expand on the leadership roles that I presented in Episode 4, How Nature Favors Creative Leaders. So you might listen to that podcast first. The five roles I introduced are part of the leadership training of the Jaguar Kings, those great tribal chiefs from pre-Columbian America. I mentioned how the roles are embodied in the ideogram of Quetzalcoatl. Two totem words, Quetzal, a bird of the Trogan family, and Coatl, a water serpent, give us the whole idea. The ideogram is called the feathered serpent. In the myth, a warrior is taught how to master his own nervous system, his brain and spinal network, to embody five ways of being, a stalker of information, a dreamer of possibilities, a seer of opportunity, a leader in action, and a persuasive communicator. In this episode, I'll explain how nature suggests we play two of these strategic roles as a whole brain exercise. I'll get into some of the science that surrounds the experience of the state of grace that makes life worth living. I should tell you a little bit on the differences between art and science. Science describes objective facts. It pursues those facts from a general understanding of the natural world in a systematic way based on evidence. Art, on the other hand, describes those activities that are pursued with the purpose of expressing an idea, an emotion, or a worldview. Art is a subjective expression of the objective facts uncovered with science. And, as such, those five activities I'll describe can become an art form. You have to explore the art for yourself. So in this part one of the podcast, I'll relate the science that tells why stalking is best accomplished with your cold-blooded reptilian brainstem and why dreaming is more properly the domain of your right brain's limbic system. In part two, I'll tell you why seeing opportunities requires the left brain's tribal logic, why leadership means mastering the brain's neocortex to acquire its overview, and, of course, why communicating with persuasion means developing a creative intent. I've been practicing the arts of stalking and dreaming for over 40 years now, consciously. But I also trained in the finer understandings of the science behind those arts. As soon as I got serious about it, I started to raise my game. I was introduced to the concept as an art form during my fourth death experience. I mentioned a few times how living in a state of grace comes from a mindset wherein you feel like the luckiest person in the world. When you feel that lucky, you attract what you need from life with relative ease. In that sense, I was blessed to have discovered how to play these five roles when I needed it most. Mind you, you should know that being totally paralyzed and wheeling around to fill your needs is a whole other challenge. After leaving the hospital, I was unemployed, financially destitute, and living in a city that was built to avoid snow and ice, not to accommodate wheelchairs. As strange as this might sound, at one point I actually felt lucky to have had the accident that paralyzed me. Of course, for you to get it, I have to explain my fourth death experience, and that of course means briefly telling you about each of the other death experiences, and a few other strange things that happened to me in that time. 
I don't want to write a book on the subject, but I have to mention these highlights to give you an explanation of the motivation behind my next 40 years. I mentioned that you should take what I'm saying as a springboard story. Springboard stories don't have to be believed or disbelieved. They are meant to be vehicles for information. The information contained in my stories will allow you to springboard or to jump from one level of realization to another. In this story, you'll learn the practical aspects that I was introduced to as the five roles of a strategic leader. I had four death experiences in the trauma that followed a bad car accident. Each of them filled me with hundreds of questions about what the hell was going on, and all of my questions were answered in subsequent experiences. In my first death experience, I was transported dead on arrival to a suburban hospital, and then I was left in the hallway for several hours. By the time my wife had been phoned and she and my brother had gotten to the hospital, I had been moved out of the emergency room. Because I was 29 years of age and at 6 foot 4 inches tall and weighing 200 pounds in tip-top shape, they insisted on seeing me right away. A doctor led them to where I was lying on a gurney in front of the morgue. He opened my left eye and offered his diagnosis. I was in total darkness. I felt a thick black, like a dense velvet, inside and outside of me. I thought, and instantly I saw a pinpoint of light at a far distance. Wanting to approach the light, I was propelled at awesome speeds, and, as I neared it, I thought the light was coming from a window just ahead of me, but next I realized it was coming from my own eye that I was seeing from the inside. Instantly, I was aware and awake and in incredible pain. A hand was holding my eye open, and an eye was looking in, and a voice said, As you can see, his eye is glassy. He's dead. The hand closed my eyes, and I was alone in the darkness again. I heard the people shuffle away. I reached up with my left arm and felt it explode into agonizing pain. I continued forcing my intent to reach up and pull my contact lenses off my eye. I croaked, is it still glassy? Chaos ensued, and I was quickly transferred to the Neurological Institute in downtown Montreal. My second death happened there, the next day. In the meantime, I realized that because I was in and out of consciousness, death made no sense to me. When the doctors and nurses thought me dead, I was not. I was aware, even if somewhere in the dark. The I was not dead. I continued. Death did not exist in the sense of an absolute end. There is continuity. There is energy. And it's organized. Very badly broken, I was institutionalized for 11 months. And for the first six weeks of that time, I was on a respirator in the ICU. When I was finally released from the Neurological Institute, I was given a prognosis of five to seven years of life expectancy because of the inner damages. In the meantime, during the accidents, my ribs had been broken and a shard of bone punctured my lung, which was slowly filling with blood. The doctors told me that they never had a full diagnosis of all that ailed me and could only deal with emergencies as they emerged. I was so fragile. I was dying. My lungs slowly filled with blood, and so on day two, I drowned right there in my hospital bed. I needed an emergency tracheotomy. They cut my throat and siphoned 1.5 liters of blood out of my lung. They hooked me to a respirator via a trachea machine and assigned me to a team of respiratory therapists. Step one, just breathe. I was told that I'd died again, but I have no recollection of it. I wondered, but was too busy learning to breathe again. I had to do it exactly like the machine dictated, not how I wanted. That was the most difficult task I ever learned. It was do or die. My third death experience happened on day three, when, tired of the fight, 
my heart just stopped. I remember lying flat my back, connected to all sorts of apparatus. Totally paralyzed, but without any pain because of a morphine drip into my hand. I was alone, looking at the ceiling, listening to my respirator, hearing the other machines and seeing people move invisibly all around me. I was learning to breathe with that machine, a little every seconds, 60 long seconds to a minute, 60 excruciating minutes in every eternal hour, 24 times a day. Do not ever quit. My body was hooked up to machines that suddenly flatlined and I was jarred. I heard the beepers go crazy and was suddenly above the wall of curtains surrounding my bed. My body was still flat on its back, but now I, the spirit me, was near the ceiling, looking down at myself. I saw that I was a very sorry mess with so many cuts, scrapes, and bruises. Tubes in my nose, my mouth, my throat, my left hand, my right arm. I saw a fellow about my age wearing a white lab coat jump up from a large yellow vinyl armchair, and he rushed to me. He glanced at the machines as he approached my bed and then raised his fists as if to strike down on my chest. But instead, suddenly he yelled, Come back for Natalie's sake. At the sound of my daughter's name, I felt a huge rush of love and instantly grew lighter. I was filled as if a balloon. I rose up through the ceiling and felt joy and filled with wonder. I rose faster through several floors and was outside of the hospital, heading into Cosmos. I saw the Mount Royal, Montreal's downtown Central Park, shrink beneath me. I continued to expand like a balloon. Deep within, I realized that I wasn't dead, even if I was no longer physically alive. My realization filled me with more joy and even more love and more expansion. I realized that my love for my daughter was allowing me to transcend death, that love is all, love is everything. Then my balloon suddenly grew so fast that it finally exploded into a hundred billion bits of light, of joy, of intelligence, of love. I was instantly back in my body, alive and aware. My fourth death experience came 18 months after that, but in the interim, I learned so many things that I'd formed new understandings of myself and my potential. It started when I traded stories with that young doctor who saved my life. A neurology intern from the university in Florida, he told me that at the last second, he realized that my sternum, my clavicles, and my ribs were broken, so he would be hitting jello. He'd kill me, not kickstart my heart, which had been his intention. He said that he didn't know that I had a daughter, and even less did he know her name was Natalie Ann. He said he just blurted out the words, and then he got caught up in the energy I was giving off. And then I was okay. I was alive. When I asked him about what energy I was giving off, he referred to it and said, the moment was like a joyful burst. Like I just knew you'd be back, that you were fine, better than fine. You were divine. In the months I was at the Neuro, after leaving the ICU and now in my own room, I enjoyed hours of conversation with him and other interns from Western Canada, Mexico, and Peru. They called me the man who would not die. In quiet times, usually late at night, Two or three young neuroscientists gathered around my bed to chat. They amazed me with their explanations of the latest discoveries on the brain and spinal cord. They were passionate when explaining the hundred billion neurons of code that they are unraveling. I apparently amazed them too with explanations of how I experienced myself as a relative point of consciousness or as the energy that links that code into functional behavior. When I finally left the hospital, I took an apartment on my own and started a focused discipline to understand myself better. With solitary wanderings in Quebec's parks and wilderness areas, I contemplated nature, and with meditation and a self-defined disability yoga, I acquired spiritual discipline. I was back in the hospital 18 months later for a major operation and highly infected, I was back in the ICU. 
In the interim, I'd spent hundreds of hours contemplating what had happened to me. I experienced a wide variety of mystic events, like sudden shifts of awareness and chance encounters. Now I was suddenly at the foot of my bed, looking down at my body, which was again attached to tubes, bottles, and bags. I heard familiar machine noises, and they went into that frenzied flatline warning. A nurse ran over to my bedside, and just as suddenly, I was back in my body, reassuring her, except it wasn't me that was doing the reassuring. My mouth was speaking, but I, me, the animator of this podcast, was only listening to what was being said. My mouth and voice were explaining to the nurse that my body had to reset so it could eliminate the poisons which were infecting me. To stop the infection, I had to stop time. But that did not necessarily mean dying. I would not die as I would only move to somewhere else in time. I was stunned to hear myself explain it, but I was very attentive. I was trying to understand what was going on. After a couple of minutes, the nurse reset the machine, took my pulse against her wristwatch, and then walked away. I was suddenly at the foot of the bed again, and then more or less the same scenario repeated itself. I, or not I, was explaining how the body me would enter a voluntary coma. My out-of-body experience to the foot of the bed happened four times. Between the third and the fourth, the nurse was sufficiently assured that she decided to turn the monitors off, to sit next to my bed, and to watch over me. Now, back at the foot of my bed for a fourth time, seeing my body laying still, and having witnessed all that happened, I felt a presence behind me. When I turned to see who was there, I felt something grab the middle of my back, and then I was caught in a vortex that sucked me inward. As I was aspirated in, I no longer saw the world out there in the ICU as a cohesive whole. Instead, I saw the solid worldview I took for granted suddenly separated into bubbles of energy. A large bubble over there had a doctor and two nurses animating it. Another bubble held two nursing assistants and a smaller bubble was for me and the nurse sitting next to my body. I continued to shrink away, drawn within. In a nanosecond, I was inside of a sequence where I perceived complete blackness, pure light, black again, and then everything suddenly lush green, vibrant, warm, and beautiful. I saw blue skies and smelled wondrous perfume air and felt an incredible vitality of energy. I was standing in a clearing about 30 feet around, and beyond, to my left, a little farther away, I saw a vertical wall hundreds of feet high, but covered in a thick carpet of forest. Around me everywhere were trees and bushes and hedges, plants and flowers. This felt more real than reality itself had ever done, and I wondered, am I dead? Is this paradise? And the answer came to me as clear as a bell. No, this is Costa Rica. But to be fair, I should more properly say that this is a long time ago and that you're almost dead. I'll stop my story here for long enough to tell you this. I'm going to recall an experience I had when I thought I was dead. I'll tell it from my own belief structure and use the language I know to describe what I think happened. You'll have to translate what I say to fit your own paradigms. In my way of understanding it, I was in a telepathic contact with my holy guardian angel. It felt like a higher energy me, a more intelligent, wiser, kinder, funnier, God as my friend, me. My holy guardian angel is a higher presence guiding me through an incredible connection to power and magic. I never really questioned the process. It was happening and I was happy for it, so I participated as well as I could. This kind of information may not be part of your usual thinking, but by becoming aware of it, you can springboard into a life that serves you better. 
The view I'll describe will demystify the interdimensional link between creator, creation, and our perception. It'll explain how God and man are linked and how that connection is indivisible. This is not something that has to be believed. My story is based on a logic that sees the world as a unified field of energy explained in theophysics, the science that tells about classical physics, quantum physics, and subjective metaphysics. To that synthesis, I'll weave in facts about ancient jaguar kings of Mexico and Middle America and how they access both sides of infinity. My revelations about the jaguar kings and queens will share a secret about our human spiritual journey. It'll tell of the universe created of light contained by four fundamental forces, gravity, electromagnetism, strong force, and weak force, all within a hyperspace. This gives us an alternate way of leaving this planet. We can die off, or we can dream our way into the next dimension. As I understood it, millennia ago, self-empowered leaders learned to use the forces of universe to create an awesome society that honored Teo, God, as the quantum spirit. In my death experiences, I saw light, the limitless oscillations of vibrational energy, or the L-O-V-E, the love of God, as pure consciousness, as pure intelligence. I experienced the creative intent that is causing the world and everything therein. And inadvertently, I pulled off a magical coup. While gazing into the light, awed, in adoration, I asked, please God, let me never forget. And in that magic moment, God gave me a formula of pure logic so I would never lose my way again. And unconditional love being what it is, ever since then, I've had counsel from my holy guardian angel who explains what he called the Theophysics Papers over a period of months after our first encounter. I'll put a URL link to those papers that I have published online with a description to this episode of the podcast. Since then, whenever I stop to wonder or to question, or when I close my eyes and quiet my thinking, my Holy Guardian Angel is ready to help me. Truly, I've said this a thousand times, God is my friend. When I was alive again after the experience I'm describing, I was motivated by the single task of trying to understand that formula. I maintained the connection to my Holy Guardian Angel that I made in that fourth death experience, and I have been receiving wondrous information on nature's management secrets for over 42 years now. In a dream about Costa Rica some 1,500 years before the Christian era, I got answers to questions I'd been asking. Those answers fit me perfectly. A first question had to do with my overall state of health. I was comforted when I was told that I'd be fine. I should think of my body as if in an induced coma. It's perfectly relaxed. It'll sort out its own defenses to the infection. In the meantime, I was told that we were in dreaming, that my brain waves were resonating in or about two to three hertz in the delta brainwave state as measured on the EEG, that my vital signs are barely detectable on the monitors. He and I were sharing a lucid dream. He was resonating to a slightly higher frequency than me. I questioned him on lucid dreamings and he told me that we were in dreaming or lucid dream together. He said everyone has two minds, one for dealing with the waking world out there and the other for managing being in dreaming. If we learn to consciously cross over from one side, the physical world, to the other side, a metaphysical world, we can experience reality as a continuum as if God's dream. And by connecting with that energy, we can become lucky. My Holy Guardian Angel and I were sharing the same coordinates in the space-time consciousness continuum. 
we were both awake in a dream about Costa Rica's South Pacific area 1,500 years before the Christian era. I was there to learn five sacred arts as understood by the Jaguar kings of pre-Columbian America, and he was there to guide me. I was told that initiates to the cult of Quetzalcoatl, the feathered servants, learned the arts of dreaming near this place. To graduate master dreamers, they held a ceremonial ritual nearby. My holy guardian angel told me, there's a 900-foot waterfall down the face of that vertical ridge. Near the top of the waterfall, behind it, there's a large cave. Initiates sit in that cave and face the wall of water which hides the entranceway. They will consciously enter the dream states. When they reach their dreaming body, they will stand, run to the wall of water, and dive through it. Their task is to awaken in a place they have pre-selected. If they do, they graduate as master dreamers. If they don't, they'll be smashed to pieces some 900 feet below. Friends, in this episode of the podcast, I'm sharing highlights of what I learned in that encounter caused by my fourth death. In part two, I'll tell you what that nurse, who is still sitting next to my coma-induced body back there in the ICU, told me after I came back to life. First, though, I'll continue with my communication with my holy guardian angel. I thought, what are the five sacred arts of magic? And I was told, planetary angels learn the art of stalking, the art of dreaming, the art of seeing, the art of leading, and the art of persuading. I thought, that's a pretty heavy agenda. But I was immediately told that I'd already mastered two of those arts. Incredulous, I asked which two, and I was told, you are already a master stalker, and just realized how you found yourself in this dream. Now that's quite amazing. I had to admit I was having an amazing dream, but instead I protested that I had no idea what he meant with the contention that I was a master stalker. He told me to gaze at a bush next to where I was standing. I approached it, they told me to look into the bush, to peer through it. I stared, and then distinguished a form on the other side. I focused on it and saw a scene from several years before. I was explaining to my sales manager why I ordered two sets of business cards and other stationery. I told him something about the two solitudes that exist between the French and the English-speaking communities in Quebec. And because I was perfectly bilingual, I wanted to avoid any divide. I ordered one set of business documents with my French name, Laurent. All the company's coordinates and such were in that language, and I had another set using my English name, Lawrence, with my English coordinates. The manager thought it cost the company too much, and I thought he was a moron, but I said nothing. The scene shifted to another experience about six months later, I was in a phone call with a customer, a French-Canadian engineer at a huge refinery. He said that his colleague, an English engineer, was on the speakerphone. They'd been chatting and discovered that they both knew me. After having discussed it, they wanted to know, are you French or English? My holy guardian angel interrupted my vision by stating, do you see, that is the very essence of stalking. Stalking is, in fact, adjusting your subjective behavior to meet objective needs. You acted French for one man and English for the other, and it got you exactly what you wanted from each. He said that the prime requirement for mastering the art of stalking is to be totally free from attachment so you can focus on what you are, in fact, pursuing. Watch the noble jaguar stalk its lunch on a YouTube video. That big cat is a master of the art of stalking. It surveys its entire 100 square mile territory as if eyeing a buffet table. The cat knows its environment so well it can become invisible within those parameters. His coloration will blend perfectly with the jungle's lights and shadows, 
The jaguar marches boldly, creeps slowly. It zigs, it zags, it stops short or moves in sudden bursts. It advances with stealth, halts, steps ever so lightly, and rushes on, always fixed on the attention of its prey. It is preparing for what its prey might do. The jaguar strategically waits for its prey's attention to go elsewhere. And as soon as that prey forgets its predator for a millisecond, the cat will burst into play, use that cubic centimeter of opportunity masterfully to act, most often successfully. That noble cat slays its prey with a single bite through the skull into his brain. From the jaguar, we learn that we can master the art of stalking anything just by focusing our will and skill on developing that practice. According to anthropologist Carlos Castaneda's teacher, Don Juan Matus, stalkers more or less practice the art of deception. They pretend to be worthy recipients of whatever it is they desire. They pretend so well that no one can tell their act from the real thing. The expression, fake it until you make it, sort of sums it up. To a stalker, faking does not mean being engaged in an outright lie, but rather it's a sophisticated and artistic way of detaching yourself from the world while remaining an integral part of exactly what is happening. Castaneda tells us that stalking can be mastered by anyone with enough energy and sufficient cohesion or intensity to practice. His teacher told him that people who are too scattered don't have the mental discipline needed to see things through to a successful conclusion. He also said that most people have to be convinced to practice. Of course, because understanding follows experience, stalkers must commit to doing certain things. So practitioners of the art should not have to be convinced to act. They should practice the art willfully and incessantly until they can stalk anything they desire. What looks like faking it to the beginner becomes second nature to the master who developed that kind of intensity for the art. This cohesion is an aspect of the motivating force and a quality of subjective will. It is somewhat like inner fire or passion. It is part of the driving force and it can be seen as a sparkle of light in a person's eyes. Attaining that intensity of light allows you to draw the maximum from any situation because the universe itself responds to the light that you release. One of the four fundamental forces, the attractive force, is linked to the strong nuclear force, a non-electric binding force that gives structure to universe. The key to mastering the art of stalking is controlled folly, and this is an artistic aspect to stalking. Folly refers to the human habit of relying on our inner dialogue to explain the outer world. Stopping the inner dialogue is what allows magic to occur. Controlled folly is willed deception. Deception is that aspect of our character that allows us to put the spin we want on circumstances and events. Control folly requires that we link up to creator's intent, which then provides the mood that will contain the required intensity of energy. I can't tell you the number of times I've had to do exactly that in order to achieve my will, to just act and let God sort it out. Try to imagine being totally paralyzed, wheelchair bound, jobless and economically devastated, an anglophone in a non-physically accessible environment in a majority French community. I faced an uphill political battle in my fight for physical access. And so I connected and reconnected with Creator's intent for equal rights for all. And I fought the good fight. Government politics were changed. Because magic is defined as the art of causing change to occur in conjunction with your will, Castanadas explains that creator's intent is a predetermination that governs the art of stalking. When linked to a creating intent, stalkers can detect an exquisite perfume, their recognition which adds joy and humor to their own intensity. Castanada wrote three precepts to the art of stalking. A. 
Everything that surrounds us is an unfathomable mystery. B, we have a duty to unravel this mystery, knowing that we never will. And C, reconciling themselves to unravel this potential, stalkers take their place in the unfathomable and consider themselves a mystery as well. Stalkers are then part of the whole, noble and equal to everything, and worthy of all. They are then able to connect to anything, anywhere, anytime. Castaneda also wrote about the seven principles that govern the art of stalking, the first being that a stalker must choose his battleground. This goes without saying. You can't be scattered while you're stalking. No, the jaguar chooses a prey and then stalks that. The second principle suggests that stalkers must disregard everything that is unnecessary. And again, that allows one to focus on what's immediately necessary. Stalkers are ready to make their last stand here and now, not inanely, but rather aligned with a creating intent. There's no second chance. There's no opportunity that'll happen in that way exactly again. You have to prosper from that opportunity that is given. Four says that stalkers must remain detached, calm and unafraid to leave room for the infinite. Five says that when faced with odds that they can't deal with, stalkers retreat within themselves for a moment to reassess. They adjust, but don't drift away from the link to a creating intent. Stalkers must compress time. They can't waste an instant. And the seventh principle suggests that stalkers never push themselves to the front. They don't act like they're in charge. Everyone is constantly filling various level of need. Attaining sufficient intensity allows you to consciously become a stalker and to then magically add quality to your life. Personal power and practice are the only factors that determine your potential. Castaneda's books also describe three kinds of stalkers. Others will say that there are three basic personality types, and I've mentioned the UCLA study on behavior that determined three, three kinds of human beings. Generally, we speak of good people who act with altruistic self-interest, bad people who act with egocentric motives only, even if it's to the detriment of others, and stupid people who act to the detriment of others, even if it's to their own detriment as well. As stalkers go, good people are most often very fluid personalities. They are serviceable, concerned, domestic, humane, sweet but not nurturing. They need direction because they can't function alone. They make perfect assistants or secretaries, companions or aides. They can stalk anything because they have the aura of being very likable. As stalkers, bad people are self-centered personalities. They are petty, mean, vindictive, envious, and jealous. They are concerned exclusively about their own needs, so they talk themselves up a lot and demean others. They expect people in situations to conform to them. They are petty tyrants who would kill to be real leaders. They stalk from a position crafted behind a cowl of being victimized by others, and therefore they become defenders of rights. As stalkers, stupid people are neither nice nor nasty. They serve no one, and yet they don't impose themselves on others either. They have an exalted opinion of themselves, derived from their ability to dream, to plan, and to hope. They have a facility for creating the illusion that great things are about to happen to them. They waste their potential by hoping things can get better and by waiting to be discovered by others. They stalk behind the veil of smoke and mirrors. Having said all of this, I can add that we are seeing more and more magical people in the world. Magical people are stalkers from the three groups who have mastered the art and can easily fill their own needs. So now they help others develop the ability. Of course, any person who has developed the real magical power is free from selfish compulsions. 
My holy guardian angel told me the ancient jaguar kings participated in reality that included both the material world and a metaphysical one. Those ancient shamans were master stalkers who could latch on to anything, ideas, people, resources, whatever, with fibers of their will. In the quantum view, everything is energy, including our conscious thoughts. So because we are connected on an energy level with everything, we can connect across time and space simply by focusing our thinking on someone or on something or on some place. Carlos Castaneda elaborated on this idea in 10 books that introduced his initiation to shamanism and to Amerindian sorcery. He says, stalking is like holding on to an idea until it is manifest as real. All that it requires is a focused concentration. The art of stalking, then, is a lot like metaphysical fishing. If you imagine your brain, mind, and spinal cord as the rod and reel, and your cauda equina, the base of your spine, as the fishing line, you can cast those fibers of fine thread-like monofilament into the sea of time-space continuum. Once touched by these fibers of your will, whatever you think becomes an extension of you until it is attained or released. Like metaphysical fishing, you need just reel it in, remembering the wisdom of the ages. Line too tight, line break. Line too loose, fish get away. You can stalk anything you want. Think about that. I'll be right back. During my fourth death, while I was in a sort of coma, my holy guardian angel also showed me that I was an expert dreamer in the same way that he had introduced me to my skills as a stalker. He made a few categorical statements that I questioned, and then he had me gaze into the nearby foliage until I remembered various dreams I'd had when I was younger, when I was a juvenile, when I was a young adult, and then after I was newly married. I remembered being fearless in my dreams when I was very young. Then I had several terrible nightmares, and they forced me to be more cautious. In another dream, I remembered receiving a large silver ring as a Christmas gift from an aunt who lived in Colombia, South America. When I was eight years old, she handed me a ring with a shamanic mask carved on the face of it, and she led me to believe it had magic power. From that moment on, I used the ring to focus my attention on the world of spirit. I remembered times where it completely changed my mood by allowing me to become more conscious of my link to magic. My holy guardian angel told me that I learned to consciously enter the second attention. Our first attention manages the world out there, and our second attention manages the world in dream. My holy guardian angel told me to notice how my moods, my feelings, my emotional charge propelled me in dreaming. He said that moods attract corresponding energy from the universe at large. This is known as resonance, when one object vibrating in the same natural frequency as a second object forces that second object into an identical vibrational motion. The word resonance comes from the Latin. It means to resound or come together in an amplified sound. If we emote love, we attract whatever resonates to love from the universe at large. If we emote aggression, we should know that there are energies more aggressive than us waiting to respond. Younger, when I fell asleep agitated or frustrated, I attracted nightmares. Or better to say, I attracted agitated and frustrated energies that resonated to my mood, amplifying it into full-fledged nightmares. After I was married, while playing softball with a company team, I batted the ball hard, and the force of it broke my ring off in my hand. 
I put it away in a drawer and then forgot about it. Now I was seeing that my life had started to fall apart soon after that, until the time of the accident that paralyzed me. I had lost the focus in my dreams. In our exchange, I came to realize that learning to shift my moods was mastering the skills needed to be a master dreamer. I no longer had a fear of nightmares, for example. Now I thought of dreaming like taking a ride on the bus. When you ride a bus, you don't control its speed, nor where or when it stops, but you can decide where to sit. And if you don't like what you're seeing out there, you can just change windows, sit somewhere else. In dreaming, that means just change moods, vibrate to another frequency. All I'd learned about dreaming came flooding back to me, and I saw how it contributed to my having survived an incredible ordeal. My holy guardian angel told me that I'd discovered the greatest of truths. I know as a fact that I am more than a physical body. I know that I am a spirit with a body. I am more than meat or matter. I am also energy, light, more than just a physical body. I'm also a metaphysical spirit. He said that in the time-space consciousness continuum, at the level of my own perception, how my spirit is interacting with my brain determines how my mind is made. Measured on an EEG, an electroencephalograph, he said that when we are awake and aware, we're in the beta brainwave frequencies. Beta resonates from 40 down to 14 hertz, or frequencies per second, and we've noted correspondences for high, medium, and low beta states. When we're aggressive, highly excited, or drugged with methamphetamines or other speed-like potions, we reach the gamma brain waves as measured from 40 to 60 hertz. At those higher speeds, our mind is racing so fast that we'll be delusional and even hallucinating. The expression, speed kills, is a good one. There is no good reason for accelerating the speed with which we think. Deep thinking, creativity, and personal power all come from the slower brainwave states. If our brain relaxes with good-humored laughter, we can be measured at around 22 hertz in the beta range. Cannabis smokers who get the giggles have been chill enough to understand what I mean. If we slow our thinking from 14 to 8 hertz, we are in the alpha states. This is where we feel meditative or contemplative when awake, or deeply relaxed and visualizing. Then, in the theta and delta brainwave states, we dream. In the theta brainwaves, we dream as if I am a camera observing my dreams. In delta states, we are in lucid dreaming or consciously aware that we are dreaming. In the lucid dream state, we can move about in dream or encounter situations or characters that we can interact with. This is the kind of dream we wake from remembering as being more vivid, more colored, more real than reality itself. I asked my holy guardian angel about the necessity of sleep, and he told me that when we sleep, we slow our consciousness through different brainwave states, and as a consequence, we experience periods of meditative reverie until we fall into deep sleep. That reverie allows us to revisit our short-term memory for triage, to sort out our recent past. In the first stages of sleep, we sort through all our daily activities to learn from them, to figure out solutions, options, and alternate ways of doing so we can grow. These are interesting states in that we experience them throughout the day without being asleep, whenever we get meditative or take time to think things through. Some people have more of these relaxed brainwave waking states than others, depending on the amount of stress or drama that they have in their lives and their daily practices. The more we process events as they occur, the faster we reach the deeper brainwave states. The average person takes about 7 to 10 minutes to fall asleep. You may fall asleep faster or you can take longer. 
People who learn to meditate give themselves a valuable gift in that they'll more easily resolve inner conflicts and can more easily reach the creative brainwaves that are available during deep sleep. By practicing creative visualization, we experience more restful and yet more profitable sleep states. During this stage of sleep, it's not unusual to experience vivid sensations like falling or flying. The sensations can be accompanied by muscle twitches and contractions that are called hypnagogic hallucinations. We may feel like we can hear someone calling our name or we'll hear a telephone ring. We might feel anxious as if there is something we must do or someplace we have to be, but then we realize we're dreaming and, relaxing, we enter deeper sleep. Hypnagogic hallucinations offer visual, vivid, auditory, tactile, and even kinetic perceptions that, like sleep paralysis, occur during the transitions between wakefulness and REM sleep. Examples include sensations of impending threat or loss, feelings of suffocation and paralysis, and sensations of floating, spinning, flying, or falling. When we enter the theta states, there is a strange period when we feel like we are somewhere between being awake and asleep. This mood can last for 5 to 15 minutes, and then we enter a second level of sleep that lasts for about 20 minutes. Now the brain begins to produce very short periods of rapid rhythmic brainwave activity known as sleep spindles. The body drops its temperature and the heart rate slows down. This gets us ready to enter the third stage of sleep. In that stage, deep, slow delta waves emerge. There is a transitional period between light sleep and deep sleep wherein the body-mind repairs itself as well it can. The deep relaxation is a reset for many of our body's systems. In that fourth stage called lucid dreaming, we recognize that we are no longer having a dream, as if imagining the dream's components, but rather we are in a world that is already dreamed. In the delta state, we become aware that we are not having a dream per se, that we are in dreaming. The world as a dream state exists. It is this world, when perceived at the subatomic level. In dream, we perceive the world as a field of energy. In dream, the world is limitless. Lucid dreaming or astral travel occurs during cycles known as REM sleep. REM sleep is characterized by rapid eye movement, increased respiration, and increased brain activity. REM sleep is also called paradoxical sleep because while the brain and other body systems are more active, our muscles become so relaxed we might even feel paralyzed. Rapid eye movement or REM sleep is when we typically dream creative breakthroughs. We may see images and bits of information float by from an early stage of sleep, particularly when we are engaged in alpha and theta brain waves, but our actual lucid dreaming occurs in REM cycles. Feeling like we're paralyzed is a built-in protection to stop us from hurting ourselves. If we feel like we're paralyzed, we won't leap out of bed or jump out of a window. Did you ever feel like you couldn't escape from a dream? Well, the truth is, you can't physically move, but you can engage or disengage from the dream. When we sleep, we do not necessarily go through all of these stages in logical sequence. Sleep begins with stage one and progresses quickly into stages two, three, and four. Then after stage four, we can slip back into stage three or two, and the cycle can be repeated several times before we fall into deep sleep. After a REM cycle, we'll return to stage two sleep again. A typical night's sleep will work its way through the stages four or five times, and yet will almost never reach the omega point. The omega point occurs at zero hertz on the EEG, when consciousness is no longer interacting with a brain. Then we perceive consciousness directly. You see light. You have an out-of-body experience and see God. 
If you don't die, you come back to talk about it. We typically reach REM sleep approximately 90 minutes after we fall asleep. The first cycle of REM often lasts only a short amount of time, but each cycle becomes longer. This is why we need long periods of sleep at night. If we only have short periods of sleep, we can't really get through the stages needed to deal, heal, and be healthy. REM sleep can last up to an hour of dream progress. In case you're wondering, if you feel like a particular dream is taking a long time, it's because it is. Contrary to what we once believed, we now know that dreams take as long as they seem to. It's easy enough to imagine, though, if you recognize that to dream, you must attract awareness from the mainstream of consciousness, from the universal I am. Awareness is out there as a component of the world. We are aware, but we can become aware of awareness. We are conscious, but we can be superconscious. We need to master the seven conditions in the art of dreaming. The world of the jaguar kings and queens is this world, but when perceived as energy. Our system of cognition does not deal with seeing the world as energy. The jaguar kings of America practiced dream magic, which allowed them to assemble their perception elsewhere in time-space-mind. I spell the word mind as the acronym M-I-N-D, move in new dimensions. I'm talking about consciousness and not brain. For the sorcerers of Mexico and Central America, dreaming was a very powerful and sophisticated art that involved manipulating the assemblage point of awareness. I discussed this in the previous podcast called Love is Magic. The ancient sorcerers saw that every individual is in fact a sphere of awareness, and as such, each is connected to the all from the center of their sphere. We become aware of three aspects of our existence, our knowledge of the world, our experience in the world, and our desires from the world. For example, I'd never heard of anthropology as a career choice when I was young, so I could not choose that profession, even if I am now convinced that I would have embraced it with passion. The choice was not in my sphere of awareness. The sorcerers suggested that we live in an infinite continuum of time-space awareness and that individuals are like drops of awareness in a sea of awareness. To them, dreaming involved a quantum reality where you displace your usual perceptions in this world to access a whole new realm, a whole new world. In terms of energy and frequency states, there are infinite possibilities. Every movement from the habitual position in one sphere of awareness to another enhances and enlarges the previous scope of possibility. Today's neurosciences confirm the sorcerer's view. Measured on an EEG, an electroencephalogram, we can see ourselves think. Our brainwaves measure, have names and correspondences in subjective behavior. The gamma brainwaves, for example, result from people who are stressed, agitated, unfocused, and driven, often hallucinating or imagining great speeds. Certain drugs like meth and cocaine provoke those high-speed states, but the physical body-mind pays a hell of a price. The increased vibration wears out the biosystem faster. Heart attacks, strokes, and psychosis can happen. Besides, those faster speeds deal with a reality from the me-first illusion. Me against the world. That's not nearly as empowering as me with others. Our normal waking state brainwaves are in the beta brainwaves, where we normally assemble our mind, move in new dimensions, Again, I'm talking about consciousness and not brain. Also, minds slow down into a more fluid states to 14 hertz experiences heightened creativity. Then, there, in the alpha brain waves, we perceive the fluid dreamscape within. This is when we are meditative. Medi means halfway, and we'll often experience it as a light sleep or dozing. Here, if awake, 
we can see ourselves think. We can see the imagery clearly inside the theta brainwave states at 8 hertz. There is the dream world, a morphic reality. If we are awake, this is experienced as creative visualization. Most people experience this state as deep sleep. Inside the delta brainwave state, the perceiver is awake in the dream. This is often called lucid dreaming. It is, in fact, perceiving a reality at its subatomic frequencies, where the solid is fluid, as particle waves E equals HF. Energy is a constant frequency. Being in dreaming is being in possession of one's soul or one's ethereal or angelic body. When we reach the omega point, consciousness is disconnected from brain and reality is experienced at the speed of light. Seeing the world at this high energy state is an awakening, which offers at once a comforting recognition and a huge imposition. We become aware of awareness and we call it God. Adopting a discipline to master dream and travel to other realities will result in the expansion of your mind, M-I-N-D, in itself. We can dream and awaken in other realities. We can become dream travelers and transcend dying off of this world by dreaming our world to another dimension. 3,000 years ago, the sorcerer scientists of America were experts at mind expansion, and they detail in stone how the individual mind can overlap the mastermind, and you can become a Jaguar King. This attainment is equivalent to Christ having stated, My Father and I are one. As did the Jaguar Kings and Queens, we can dream our way into heaven on earth. The interpretation of those sorcerer scientists is based on seven conditions that allow us to see the energy flow of the universe beyond the human inner dialogue as it is being assembled. There is a hierarchy of intelligence beyond our inner dialogue. After moving beyond the limited awareness into an assembled omega point, the Jaguar kings dreamed together and created a theocratic kingdom where law was based on altruistic self-interest as accepting creator's intent. It was predetermined that we human beings assemble a logical view of the world from minds composed of conscious and subconscious realms of awareness. The morphic density of mind deals with the energy of a secondary resonance, our memory. Among our principles of self-organization, we include self-correction. Whether you see it that way or not, you are a sphere of awareness, but part of a larger field of energy. A collective unconscious mind that is the realm within a much larger field of potential, a creating intent. Think that you're just a drop in the ocean when God is the whole ocean. You're just as wet, just as salty, but you are not the ocean. At the superconscious level, the energy of universe, the limitless oscillations of vibrating energy, or the L-O-V-E, the love of God, is perceptually available at the omega point, where it is manifest as light, as pure consciousness. You are self-aware, but you become aware of awareness too. There is discarnate intelligence, and we can consciously attract it. An awareness exists beyond our physical perception. The world is more than the solid or material view that we take for granted. Our world is also part of a time-space consciousness continuum that is quite different from what most people expect, even if they experience altered states of reality. The continuum includes morphic densities or dream states, and this morphic world is reacting to us, to our moods. There are seven principles that spell out the science that suggests we can expand our mind. The science is a little dry for my animation on this podcast, but I'll list the principles in the transcript to this episode. You'll find the URL to download a free copy of the transcript with the description to this episode. It'll be highlighted on page 23. 
the principles tell us that instead of dust to dust, our spiritual destiny is light to light. So welcome to the kingdom. Friends, let me know if I can answer questions you may have on those first two magical arts, stalking and dreaming. The mastery of stalking can get you anything you want in this world. And by mastering the dream world, you'll gain an alternative to dying your way off the planet. You can dream yourself elsewhere. If you change your dream, you can co-create God's paradise here on Earth. But to do that, you'll have to master seeing, which means having the ability to extract the very best from any situation. The art of being a leader, so that you position yourself at the forefront of circumstances and events. And if you master the art of persuasion, then you can communicate your intent with maximum efficiency. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time with part two of episode number 10, The Sacred Arts, when I discuss the arts of seeing, leading, and persuading. Make sure you tune into that. Folks, if you enjoyed this episode of the Jungle Times podcast, please give it a positive review. Tell your friends about it and subscribe to this channel. If you didn't like it, kindly write and tell me why not. If you'd like a transcript of the podcast, visit my website. Listeners have remarked that they get a lot of benefit from listening to the podcast again with a transcript in hand. You can download it at thejungletimes.com. I'll speak to you again next time. Adios. The Jungle Times podcast was written and animated by Lawrence Poole. If you enjoyed his presentation, share it with your friends and colleagues, click the like button, and leave your opinions in the comment section. Visit thejungletimes.com to learn more about Lawrence and his adventures. Follow him on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Twitter. You can order his latest book, Invest in Your Creative Capital, from Amazon.com. Subscribe to this channel in order to receive all the latest news. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.